Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. This one is a special edition previewing four films from the Dock and Roll Festival. You're going to hear from Matt Kay, director of TLC Forever, Stephen Parsons and Anka Trojan, the co-directors of Not A Rock Dock, A Shark's Tale, Aaron Trinder, director of Free Party of Folk History, and finally, Lee Thompson, battling through a sore throat, talking about the film he directed, Storm Heaven, the story of Trampoline. The format is standard across all the interviews, but unlike the normal podcast that I put out, you won't be hearing my voice asking the questions. But be sure that everybody was asked to give a brief synopsis of their film, a fond memory from the research pre-production period, from shooting the doc, and what did they discover about the story in the edit, and then thinking about what they perceived before making the film and how they perceived the subject of their documentary after having finished the project. And then the final question is about who would they like to see in the audience, alive or dead, famous or personal to them. On to the interviews. Hello, so my name is Matt Kay. I'm a documentary director and I made the film TLC Forever. TLC Forever is about the music group TLC. They were big in the 90s and the noughties, and they're still performing now. And so the film is really an exploration of the group, documenting their rise, showcasing what they stood for, why they're so pioneering, and also following them in the present day as they attempt to do their first concert out of COVID. They're the biggest American female group of all time, and so we're kind of showing how they first broke boundaries and why they're really kind of uh, trailblazing as a female group, but then also in the present day, showing how they're still continuing to to break those boundaries and to to smash those barriers. It was uh, quite an adventure making this film. And initially when we started it, the process was going to be quite a short pre-production process and uh, quite a short production process. We actually signed the contract back in... March 2020 and obviously the whole the whole world changed and um, from then uh, what was supposed to be a really rapid six weeks I believe before I was supposed to be out in Atlanta 
uh, kind of extended to nine months. And so what was going to be a very quick uh, process ended up being much longer, which at the start, I was kind of a bit anxious because I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to make it out there when everything closed and America closed their borders. But luckily, I was able to get a visa exemption and I was able to, to fly. But I didn't end up flying until November 2020. And so from March 2020, all the way up until November, we we're having different Zoom calls with both Tion and uh, Chili, who are the two the two singers in TLC, and it ended up being really great because we we're obviously going through this uh, quite similar, um, very bizarre experience of COVID, but we we're able to to talk alongside that and able to do much more research. So I was able to really dive into the world of TLC, watch back all their old archives, interviews, their music videos, their red carpet appearances, all the talk shows, and so in the end. Uh, the one silver lining for me with COVID and being in lockdown was I was really able to immerse myself in in the band, in their world, which then ended up making for a much better film as a result. And also much more in-depth film because initially, as I said, it's going to be a very quick process. So because it wasn't a quick process with that research, it meant that they were very familiar with me by the time we, we met in person and we'd had multiple conversations, all of which... Uh, wouldn't have happened. They'd have been very busy had it not been for COVID. And also, um, there wasn't as much money. So, um, it, uh, yeah, it ended up actually benefiting the film as a result, which um, I guess was a one saving grace of not losing my mind during um, during the whole lockdown process. Oh, shooting the documentary was an amazing experience. Uh, there's so many great memories. Um, one, uh, I'll just wait for this, there's a, a little tuk-tuk passing by, which is advertising um, a Muay Thai fight tonight. Um, yeah, it's an amazing experience, the whole shooting process. Uh, and because of COVID, it ended up being much, much more of a longer experience as well. And so what was supposed to be one shoot turned into five shoots. So I was going and coming back, uh, able to follow their whole kind of rehearsal experience. What was really... Um, both poignant but, but also really powerful for me was that Tion Watkins, one of the, uh, the lead singers in TLC, the T in TLC, she has a sickle cell um, disease, which meant that she had to be extremely careful during the whole COVID process because she's immunocompromised. And so she did get COVID. She'd been much more vulnerable and at risk than other people. And so she still continued to do the tour and decided she wanted to do the rehearsal process and continue on which then kind of put a different slant on the whole filmmaking process, but also the whole tour. So all the backup dancers, all the people in their production, all the band, they obviously knew that she was kind of being more at risk, literally risking her life, which then meant that for us as, as filmmakers, as a team and also their team, it then made us all take it much more seriously and knowing that it, it was a, uh, it was of great importance that she was going to prioritize this tour. So I think, um, that just allowed for the whole experience to take on uh, a greater purpose, so to speak. And then I think uh, alongside that, she, because we'd met and she was very comfortable with us by the time we were filming, she did unfortunately have to go to hospital a couple of times and allowed me to visit her in hospital uh, and film, which um, then uh, was a very vulnerable moment, very, um, very brave and really exemplified, I think, what both Tion and Chile represent in terms of being these strong women that um, always are willing to go up against things and try and take on and overcome different obstacles that they've 
both ended up facing their their whole career. So once we got back from the shooting process, we had a huge amount of footage and we were able to uh, just kind of, again, during COVID, just digest this and, and watch all this amazing, um, all the amazing rushes. I think what I learned from the rushes is they first met when uh, not even 20, they're 18 and 19. And having seen that in the archive and then seeing them in the footage that we'd shot, it shows that even though they're now in their 50s and lots has kind of changed and, and moved on and advanced, uh, in many ways, they're, they're still that same spirit and they've still got that same energy and that same lovely connection. They've been through lots of highs, but also, unfortunately, lots of lows. And I feel just having had all of that life experience just only really strengthened their bond. And so it's really special just seeing their relationship um, that they've managed to maintain over these decades of performing together and having multiple million um, platinum uh, records. And, and I think that is a lasting memory, just, just their bond and connection um, and being able to see how they interact with fans. So yeah, it's a real privilege uh, for us to, to, be, to be on that journey. But I think another thing was that um, at the time in the, in the early 90s, it came up against a lot of misogyny and things that we would hope wouldn't be acceptable today. And um, after the whole Me Too movement um, had, had begun, uh, we were able to, to show that in a new light, which was showed how some things have uh, thankfully changed and evolved, but obviously lots of the things remain the same. And I think both through that campaign and then also the lens of Black Lives Matter, we're able to see how these three incredibly brave, strong women uh, kind of went, agone, went against the, the odds to, to succeed. Um, and we were able to, to kind of see the fruits of that in, in the footage through viewing it in a contemporary way. As, as they're now in, in, their, in their 50s, showing how they use that life experience to kind of keep on and, and to develop in advance, uh, regardless of what they've had to come up against. I guess at the start, um, I knew, like many people may do, uh, Waterfalls and Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls and, and No Scrubs. I knew those, those two songs and um, I appreciated them in terms of their hits. But I guess what I hadn't really appreciated were the the things that they they'd done, which and then the things that they'd come up against. So I didn't really know about um, some of their struggles that they did, and and so that gave me a whole new uh, appreciation for for them as women, but then also for the group and and what they stood for. And then also um, I was able to film them in a in a few concerts, um, their first ones back, and and just seeing their interaction with the fans and seeing how much. Um, they meant to so many people in, and so many different types of people was, uh, was yeah, really special. Just, um, yeah, people from all walks of life, uh, young and old, people that weren't around in the 90s or even in the 2000s, uh, but were still singing along to, to their hits, same as women um, in their 50s <laughs> that were singing along to their hits. And so, yeah, I think what really struck me was just the, the array of, of fans they had and that connection that they had. And, um, and yeah, I guess what they meant to so many people and how they felt that even though they're an all-female um, African-American group from Atlanta, they are literally, um, yeah, kind of universal in, in their appeal. And yeah, there's people, all sorts of people, all sorts of ages that really connect with, with their story and what they've been through and, and also their, their songs. So I guess just the layers and the depth is, is what struck me 
through making the film and and the appreciation I then had for them and uh, and as individuals, but uh, more importantly as as TLC when they combined as a group. Uh, if I could have one person to see the film uh, alive or dead, I would have to say it would be uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, who is the L in in TLC, uh, but tragically. Um, passed away in 2001 and so saw huge heights of the group but then unfortunately didn't, wasn't able to to grow older and wiser as Chile and Tion have been able to um, in their later years and really had that bond strengthened. There's many fractitious moments uh, with the three of them and um, there's a lot of love and they were like sisters and so for them, it was like losing a sister, uh, but unfortunately, they weren't able to kind of to to look back with her to see all what they had accomplished. So I think I think um, if she'd be able to see it, she'd be uh, very proud and very happy to to see what she contributed to. But then hopefully, also would be would be pleased about how she's represented in the film. We tried to, one one last thing about uh, Lisa was that we tried to incorporate her voice as much as we could in the film to give her a sense of immediacy as with Chile and Tion. And so I went back through all of her old interviews and tried to keep that as alive and as present as, as their voices. So, um, so uh, the viewers, as they watch it, will have to let me know if, um, if that comes across. Well, I'm uh, Anka Trojan. I'm the uh, co-director, the editor. And I did part of the camera work. And you ask questions in the film. I, by the way, the male voice here, am Stephen Parsons, and or Stephen Snips Parsons. I am the direct co-director of the film and one of the two main protagonists in Not a Rock Dog. Well, the synopsis would be, it's about... Uh, Two oldsters who go on a late life adventure, trying to revive their cult band from the 70s. And um, it all goes a bit tits up. And uh... Yes, it, that's absolutely accurate. Um, there is comedy uh, and tragedy mixed together. I think we can say that. The process was long and hard, I would say. Well, pre-prod. Pre well, there was no pre-production, really, because we didn't have any uh, financing. No, but we did actually have finance at the beginning, and there was a good degree of pre-production in terms of how we would present, you know, a historical thing of the Sharks, as well as the old guys taking their band back on the road. And there was a lot of thought went into that and how much yeah. history should be sewn in the film. And that's something that definitely changed from pre-production because pre-production was about, oh, let's get the history of the sharks into the first half of the film. Um, and in the end, we decided to junk most of that material. There is a very little history of the sharks as a band in the film. We, we give just enough so that people know that we were something, we were a significant kind of event, 
Um, but the concentration is on what we did between 2016 through 2018 when we revised the band. So I think things changed, yeah? Well, also the, the, how we approached it, editing as such changed a lot. Because like during the pandemic, we had more time. Because the thing is, we only worked on the movie when I was not on uh, money jobs. So it was all like, you know, partial working that made it really hard for Steve as well. And uh, during the pandemic, we just realized that we're not going to tell it in a classical way. Well, we were bored. I mean, let's be frank. The pandemic was just the most boring event. There wasn't anything to do. You couldn't go anywhere. And we had to amuse ourselves. And we had this film and the two of us were here. And we just really messed it around and made, you know, made it absurd, made it amusing for ourselves, spent hours crying on the floor with laughter at the ridiculous stuff we did. We did pull back at the end because well, it was going a bit too whack. That's the point. I mean, some of that, though, although we have pulled back on it and the film is now uh, understandable, <laughs> that... Um, but some of that absurdity and boredom and fed its way into the film and I think to its value, actually. So that's something that changed. None of us uh, anticipated there would be a kind of pandemic period where you could just literally concentrate on it and play. Also, the speed of the storytelling changed. Yes. It wasn't that speedy from the beginning. That's, that's true. Otherwise, we would have had a four-hour film and the audience would have been bored off their asses. Most memorable event in, in when we shot it. What is memorable for you, Anka? Well, the shooting day in Scarborough, obviously. Yes. Um, just to explain that the, um, the denouement of the film is when we really hit a very, very bad situation um, and... Playing live in the market hall. Well, I'm, uh, let's not describe it because people should see this film. But it it is comedy gold when 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 a, uh, one force meets another, and everything that could possibly you could possibly imagine goes wrong. I had a funny feeling about that particular day, and I had said to Anka, "For God's sake, get, make sure you have enough battery. Get everything today because I feel it will be." And of course. That particular experience was much, much worse than I'd anticipated. Um, so that was just, I think once we had that, once that long day of shooting was done, we knew we had a film because we knew we were going somewhere absolutely bizarre and somewhere that the audience have not really been before, except maybe in Spinal Tap, but Spinal Tap is fiction and ours is absolutely real. Well, how do I think about the change after making the film into my how I see it? Basically, as a protagonist and director uh, and someone who sat through hours and hours of edit, you get sick of yourself. First of all, you just hate yourself. I mean, I am that's oh yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. You, you you see yourself in in so many different lights, not all of them are flattering. Um, and then I, I think I developed a second skin. 
which is, it's just that guy. So it, I'm looking at the guy. It helped a lot because in the film, my hair is dyed red and now it's back to its natural white. So I could look at snips in the film as just this separate person who was doing these things. And I, 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 I was able to objectify that character as much as Chris Spedding, really. There are snips in the film and Chris Spedding, to me, they're separate people from myself. Yeah, but I think that was uh, that was uh, a process as well. You didn't just do that when we started. No, as I say, editing it, it developed more. But and more. it was like, like really impressive because that was always my worry as well that somebody can't do that, like treat themselves as a as a subject. Yeah, but I it took a while, maybe about eight nine months, but I got yeah. there. I think I really got there and. I still look at it when I watch the film. I think, oh yeah, that's that guy along with Chris Spedding. Um, yeah, that was. Uh... This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. An unusual and interesting experience for a man of my age, really. Well, it was a bit much when during the editing process you wanted to listen to your radio show as well, which you were doing at the time. Did I? Yeah. And then I said, that's enough. We're not working on the movie. You're being here and now we're listening to your radio show as well. Yeah, but my own radio show is, 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 is one of my favorite listening experiences. I also figured that's another guy as well, so... Basically, I've shed selves. And I think that's possible. No, I think it is possible for people to shed themselves. It is actually, you know, I mean, David Bowie is perhaps the most famous example of this, but I think it's possible. You know, you just throw them off. You go, oh, yeah, that was that. Now I'm, now I'm somewhere else, you know? Now I live in Berlin and live a hedonistic life and go to techno clubs. Five years ago, I was tearing it up in a rock band, and etc. Um, it's possible. Well, I think it's mostly about a, a way of uh, editing, really. Because we just knew that we're not going to get anywhere with a, with a formal approach. And also, like, uh, editing comedy. Hmm. 
So I just learned a lot um, out of the editing for my for my current and future work as well. How to edit comedy? Yeah. That's what you get for working with English people. Because <laughs> we know about comedy. That's our thing. It's one of, well, it's one of our things. I mean, I have to say, Anka is, is not only what she said, but she also crops up from time to time in the film, not, not on screen, asking questions that range from the pertinent to the absurd. And uh, we use people's reactions. Sometimes having someone say something that's really off-piste, you get... I mean, I've directed actors, and the, the best way to get performances out of actors, I found, was just throw them off their off their balance, you know, just just throw throw them into situations and start things in a way that they don't expect, and you get something really interesting. And uh, I think Anka's... You did throw me off uh, stage with the camera once. Yes, I did. Yeah, that's On a concert. That's true. By that's mistake, true. I'd say that. Was it a mistake? You were on stage singing, yeah. Yeah, but did I throw you off stage by mistake or on purpose? I hope by mistake. You'll never know. Well, I really would have liked Jordan Mooney to see the film because she's in it and I only met her on that one day. She left an impression and I think she really would have liked her as well, the movie. I, I can't disagree. Jordan, Jordan was just a fantastic person to have. Um, I mean, difficult to get, to, to get women into this film. Plenty of women working on it. You know, got a female co-director, female editor, admin person, female. Our sound person is female. But to get someone on screen in what is a male-dominated still situation uh, was not easy. But uh, Jordan Mooney, and if you don't know who Jordan is, she was part of the Sex Pistols crew and Vivian Westwood's muse and an all-around wonderful person. and. Funnily enough, she lived in Seaford, and we, we, we were filming in Lewis, um, down near Brighton. And uh, it was a great call. Hey, because Chris Bedding, the legendary guitar player in the film, is uh, notoriously uh, tight with what he gives away. He's a very uh, inward person, and I wanted to get him out. And when I thought... You know, Jordan can do this. And I agree with Anchor. It's, it's kind of sad because what we did, we got her to interview Chris Spedding at length, and she got some unbelievable things out of him that I didn't know. Um, and she was so good at it that I think Jordan could have had another career as a kind of, I don't know, TV agony aunt for strange... <laughs> disorientated people. She was absolutely wonderful. And uh, I, I miss her very much. She died about a year ago now. And yes, so if we had just one person we could take to the Dock and Roll screening at the Rich Mix on October the 28th, it would be Jordan Moon. My name is Aaron Trinder. Um, I'm the director, filmmaker uh, of Free Party, A Folk History. Uh, which is a film charting the rave scenes meeting with the New Age travellers in the very early 90s, which created the explosion of free parties uh, and which ended up changing the law as a result with the Criminal Justice Bill. 
So the lasting memory, uh, in a way, in the production of this film is that so much of it was done during lockdown and so much of it was done standing in this exact spot that I'm standing in right now in front of my in front of my desk. Uh, and, you know, after sort of five years in a way, what's great is that that process is, is eventually and finally changing. We're, we're getting out in the world to show the film to people. But so much of the process was research online. So much of it was research done during lockdown. Uh, and, you know, uh, using the evil monstrosity of social media to find people, to talk to people, to discover stories, for them to share their archives. Um, but a lot of the actual filming side of it would come kind of either side of that, if you like. So one particular memory was with uh, my camera assistant standing at the top of where we discovered uh, a matching frame for the uh, wide shot over Castle Morton Common for a piece of archive that I also had. So we shot it in the present day, uh, now a very empty, large um, common with with no sign of hippies or ravers everywhere. And it and when we caught that moment and we looked over and we had the little phone and we realised we'd matched the shot entirely, it was like euphoria. We realised we'd connected the past to the present perfectly with this frame. So that's definitely a lasting memory in terms of real life experience of the filming and the production of it. I think what I discovered both during the edit, but also during the interview process was that the story wasn't exactly as I had in my head when I started posing the questions, you know? So Originally, I thought of this as a short film idea because I thought I can achieve that on a very modest amount of budget and my free time. And then when I started doing the interviews, I realized there's such a rich uh, story to explore here. I can't just tell a short version of it. I've got to tell a feature length version. And, and what I realized when I did go back to the edit was very long interviews I did with key contributors. My questions, in a way, were slightly off the mark because their responses were, were kind of drawing me to the real side of the story. And I, I was persistently trying to get my vision, if you like, over. Uh, and, and then what I realized was that going back to the interviews over and over again, I saw all the different strands that I'd missed. And so it really became a process of kind of forgetting that first version I had in my head and really listening to the people that I'd interviewed and seeing where the story actually was, which was uh, which was much more complex, uh, but also in a way much more of a sort of classic dramatic five act tale than I'd imagined. Uh, it wasn't just a story of people having parties. It was this great kind of you know um, utopian kind of naive young people searching for a kind of a, a, a utopian way of life, and, a, and then coming up against the ultimate antagonist, you know, the state. So in a way, it was definitely a process of me forgetting my first perspective and really listening to the interviews that I'd actually done and hearing where the story really was. Well, certainly an interview with uh, Mark from Spiral Tribe, who's just written a fantastic book as well uh, called A Darker Electricity. Uh, he's, he's a very eloquent guy. And uh, listening back to my interviews with him, it was, I could hear my sort of story that I'd had in my head in my questions. And I missed actually 
a vital kind of eight months, nine months of the storyline. But thankfully, because he's quite a good storyteller, he kind of filled in those blanks for me. And I remember at the time getting a bit frustrated, thinking he's not telling me the stuff I want to hear. And then when I listened back, it was like, he was telling me everything I wanted to hear. Actually, you know, he's really given to me a whole level of depth that I uh, wasn't expecting. Um, so, yeah, his interview, actually, in the end, what was great was um, a few key people. I not only did face-to-face interviews, but I sort of filled in the gaps afterwards and went back to them and said, look, we, we, we covered this really well, but do you mind if we just talk about this other aspect? And we did it all over uh, Zoom and remotely so that I could really flesh certain things out in much more detail. So, so I did maybe five or six interviews with um, Mark from Spiral Tribe and also with uh, Harry from DIY, who's also written a fantastic book called Dreaming in Yellow. So they were the two kind of key storytellers that really helped me sort of shape, I suppose, the narrative. And it just so happened that they were both telling their own version of the story, which is now out in the world. So if I had to choose one person to be in the audience, uh, alive or dead is a tricky one because obviously you start to go right back to kind of uh, heroes. But I suppose I'd go for somebody contemporary, uh, somebody who I admire their style. So I'm going to choose two. I'm going to say it's either Julian Temple because I'm a big Julian Temple fan uh, or it's or it's Brett Morgan who's just made the amazing a documentary on um, David Bowie, uh, Moon Age Daydream, which is, for me, you know, possibly the most wonderful music documentary of the last 20 years. So it's one of those two. And we'd have a beer afterwards, of course. My name is Lisa Thomas. Um, I'm the director of Storm Heaven. The film Storm Heaven is about a band called Trampoline. And it is about three boys who start the band in Swansea. Uh, and they start a journey in London. Um, and they kind of take London rock and roll scene by storm, if you would. And um, the film shows not just their music, but uh, their friendship also. And their kind of love for poetry, art, and their fan base as well, you know, um, develops from, obviously, their music and poetry and art, etc. But, you know, it develops as well onto a kind of on-the-road uh, vibe, if you would. And, um, yeah, kind of shows them starting off and getting somewhere, really. It's a, a lasting memory for me for the pre-production and research. I suppose I've kind of always seen uh, the friendship within the band because um, I'm obviously Wayne's brother, and Wayne, if you don't know, is the bass player of Trampoline. So I've kind of always seen Wayne with Jack and Kyle, and I've always seen their friendship anyway. So or kind of any research or pre-production for the film, I kind of had at the back of my mind anyway, because obviously there's family within the band. Um, so I kind of always saw their friendship anyway and kind of knew their music years and years ago. And it was kind of a pleasure to kind of show my side of the story and kind of 
show what I'd seen, really, and kind of show well, the world's trampoline and the band and generally, you know, where they'd come from. Um, so I suppose the last memory is just the memory of the boys and their friendship and their camaraderie. And um, I, can, I briefly lived with them when I first moved to London also, so I kind of saw a lot of parties, a lot of uh, music being written and such. Um, so, yeah, I suppose... That's very beneficial. Last memory from the shooting of the film is uh, one of the shots, one of the scenes, actually. Um, the boys are playing an arena gig. Uh, I won't give too much away. Um, and obviously, arena is a massive stage, essentially. Um, so from, you know, the start of the gig, I'm filming on stage and I'm trying to get as many good shots as possible. And I remember I wanted one from at the back of the arena. And, you know, during that set, I had to pick up all my equipment, run off the stage, down past the stage, past this massive crowd, I ran all the way because I didn't have much time, you know, ran to the back of the arena ran up the flights of stairs and managed to get a shot from the back of the arena. And I had to run all the way back there and had all, all my camera equipment and such. And I remember that was one of the fastest times I'd ever ran, you know. Um, and the boys probably thought, oh, where, where's Lee gone now, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely worth it for the shot. And obviously the boys thought, I told them afterwards, and must have thought, you know, well done for doing that, like. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely worth it for the shot. What I discovered in the editing process was, uh, I see how true the boys' story is. Um, obviously, they uh, set, set out with an intention when they moved to London and, you know, they wanted to go for it, really. And, you know, push themselves with their music. And when I, you know, put the film together in the edit, um, obviously those footage captured much later than some interviews that took place. And it kind of shows that they stuck to their guns, really. Uh, I think at one point in the film, uh, I think one of those mentions um, you know, it might not show um, how much hard work in, but um, it did what was necessary. And it kind of shows that throughout the film. And I kind of realized in the edit, and I was like, yeah, they put a lot of hard work into this, you know, and it just shows really. Um, I think I first started embarking on a project. And, you know, compared to now, I think a significant change uh, would be, I think, how um, loyal the band is to themselves and to their actual fans, you know. Um, obviously, when I first embarked on the project, I was, like, just getting started with filming them on tour and things. And, obviously... I kind of met them around their fans and saw them on stage, etc. And 
just the loyalty between the fans and the youngsters to the boys' music is just outstanding, really. You know, you see the same faces, same characters, and it's just, you know, fantastic to see the following develop, really. And it's kind of like a cult following in some ways, but it's just fantastic to see such an amazing crowd at all their gigs, really. And, you know, to see that develop over the years, but still maintaining the same kind of um, group, really, is, is phenomenal, you know. Uh, and seeing that develop is, is fantastic. Someone I'd like to be in the audience at the screen and dead alive. Um, to be honest, I probably want uh, my mother there, actually. Uh, she sadly passed away a few years ago. Uh, she suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, um, and yeah, I think she would have loved the film, to be honest. Um, I showed her the boys' music years ago, um, and she loved them. And yeah, I think it would have been nice for her to see it, but uh, obviously it's a shame she can't. But I think she, if she was in the crowd, she'd be loving it, really. She'd be laughing her head off. Um, and yeah, she would have loved the hard work that went into it. Well, that's it for what I'm calling Give Me the Music, a continuation on a theme of titled podcasts where I called my Fright Fest coverage Give Me the Fear. So thank you for taking time to listen to the Britflix podcast. If you enjoyed it and you have time, please drop us a review, rate the podcast wherever you listen. Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.